1: Thank you for joining us for the AccuWeather podcast, Everything Under the Sun. I'm your host, meteorologist Regina Miller, and I'm joined in the studio by Andy Robb, my producer. Hi, Andy. Hi, Regina. Hey, this week we are talking about the tornado outbreak of 2011.
2: Uh, A historic outbreak for tornadoes and uh, left uh, left behind uh, quite a path of destruction.
1: It really did. It was uh, April 26th through the 28th was the significant days of the storm there were some days earlier than that that our own extreme meteorologist reed timmer was on the ground chasing storms we're going to be talking to him coming up and then also we're going to be talking to our broadcast meteorologist jeff cornish from the accuweather network about tornadoes and the formation but just to mention some of the uh statistics with this particular tornado outbreak 362 confirmed tornadoes across 15 states wait wait, say that one more time yeah right 362 confirmed tornadoes across 15 states wow so think about the size of that and it was over several days the death toll was estimated at 321 and thousands injured and uh, at, at its height uh an ef4 1.5 miles wide when you think about it why I know it's huge it's bigger than 26 football fields so the winds reached 190 miles per hour. This is according to NOAA, traveled over 80 miles and passed through Tuscaloosa and Birmingham and left them nearly unrecognizable. Could you imagine having something that large I, coming right towards you? I, I can't. I can't. And I can't I've even seen wrap my head some. Around. And the video of it is pretty amazing. And I mentioned our AccuWeather Extreme Meteorologist, Reed Timmer. Well, he was chasing on the ground with the show Storm Chasers from the Discovery Channel that day. Take a
2: listen. 397 PUE from Playtown. Oh my god, look at the horizontal vortices on the left side. Alright, I know. Watch out, watch out, watch out. It's not moving side to side, which means it's coming right at yeah, us right now. Right us. We need to be it's this house right here! Hey, run up to that house! Get him to Let take him shelter! Move. Wow, that gave me a bit of anxiety.
1: I know, I know. He was actually trying to save people from the path of the destruction. So we're gonna be talking to him and also Jeff. Stay with us. So I'm joined now on the phone by Reed Timmer, our extreme meteorologist. Thanks for joining me, Reed.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Always great to talk to you about these storms and we want to talk particularly about the tornado super outbreak of twenty eleven So can you tell me about because we there were um three days the twenty sixth through the twenty eighth that were considered the super outbreak, but you had said that even on the 25th, 24th, you were talking about chasing storms at that point in time as well. So can you talk to me about that?
2: Yeah, well, we could certainly see that the super outbreak coming days in advance. We knew that the 27th was a really big outbreak, but there were several severe weather events leading up to that. Uh, The 24th, I believe we were on to supercells in North Texas right near Sunset. And then the 25th, we were on a damaging supercell to the north of Little Rock that Impact of the Jacksonville area. And we were in the Dominator storm chasing vehicle, so we had our armored vehicles out there. We were trying to intercept them, and um, this is when we were shooting storm chasers for Discovery Channel as well. So we were trying to track down these tornadoes and launch rockets into them and uh, probes to try to record data. And I remember that on the 25th, to the north of Little Rock, the storms developed relatively late, and there were some damaging tornadoes in other parts of Arkansas during the day. But the one that we intercepted were, was uh, right after sunset near the Jacksonville area. And then on the 26th, uh, there was there were several tornadoes also reported to the east of Dallas. And we intercepted a few of those tornadoes directly uh, in Van Vance County. And uh, there was a multiple vortex tornado that uh, I remember seeing suction vortices ripping trees out of the ground. And then we continued to push east because we knew that The 27th was the big outbreak, and all the ingredients in the forecast models were maxed out for tornadoes in terms of wind shear, instability, uh, the low-level jet that we talk about so often, uh, the winds just above the ground were approaching hurricane force, and the winds at the surface were about 10 knots. And I remember waking up that morning and looking up at the sky and just seeing that low-level jet ripping from south to north and then looking at the models and uh, just being completely helpless because he knew that they were going to be damaging tornadoes over such a multiple state area. And they're already damaging tornadoes that morning as well near the Huntsville area at about five in the morning. So um, it certainly started very active the morning of the super outbreak as well.
1: Wow. That's what I was going to ask you about was, was how the day started for you, what you were seeing. And did you feel at that time that it would prove to be as devastating as it was?
2: Yeah, I think uh, there are no questions that it it was going to be a a substantial outbreak and likely a historic one as well with the the ingredients so maxed out in the models. Um, In fact, it was beyond most of the legends that we saw in the model forecast maps. Much of the low-level helicity and uh, the cape and all those ingredients that we've learned so much as storm chasers and meteorologists were so maxed out over such a large area. It was just the perfect storm in in terms of tornadoes. And it certainly was a helpless feeling because we knew there were going to be damaging tornado tracks. You just didn't know exactly where where they were going to set up. And you also knew that if there was a tornado that was touching down in that environment, that it was likely going to be a a violent tornado, violent long track.
1: Who was with you? And then tell me about your concerns for you and your team as the event really started to unfold that day on the
2: 27th. Well, we had a a very large team back then. We had uh, both armored vehicles out in the field that were designed to intercept tornadoes directly and they had hydraulics so you could drop them flush to the ground and then harpoons that would go into the pavement even six or eight inches and lock those vehicles in place. So we had both of those vehicles out there. We had a a medic vehicle as well and then two production vehicles and uh, drone teams too to do uh, aerial uh, photography while we were out there. So we certainly had our full team out there and we knew it was going to be a substantial outbreak as well. But with you know the tornadoes being so violent our mission definitely shifted from intercepting those tornadoes more to just warning people in the path of them because they were going to be so strong that even our armored vehicles would be just no match for those those types of tornadoes
1: what was the most incredible thing you remember seeing that day what tornado and, and
2: where were you well we were on the uh, initial storm of the afternoon wave of supercells. So there was a, a storm that developed just to the east of Jackson. And I remember when I saw it develop on radar, it was already rotating even before it was producing rain all the way to the ground. And it even had a tornado on the ground before it started producing rain. Uh, so the storms were very efficient at producing tornadoes, which shows you that when all the ingredients are in place, the atmosphere is is uh, can very easily produce these tornadoes in a very short amount of time. So they would go from being cumulonimbus clouds to having full violent tornadoes on the ground in probably a matter of 15 minutes. And this storm certainly had that look of being a long-track tornado producer. It had a, a deviant motion. It had that classic concave appearance to the initial reflectivity, even though it was pretty low before it was producing rain. And so we tried to position in the path of that storm. And I remember literally taking out a ruler and finding locations along it future path that looked relatively open in terms of viewing that didn't have much in the way of trees. And so we happened to position just to the east of Philadelphia, Mississippi, and just waited for the storm. And finally, we gained visual in a few minutes. It was moving relatively rapidly because the winds were so strong aloft. And it was a very very compact storm, very smooth and laminar as well. And when it came over the trees, there was a massive wedge already on the ground with a very sharp left edge to it, and it had horizontal vortices feeding into it. And one thing I remember about that tornado was uh, the very violent upward motion that you could see with it and the very loud roar as well. It had a, a very loud, almost deafening roar to it. So you knew that it was definitely a violent tornado, and that one ended up being the 1st ef ES-5 of the super outbreak. And it was rated that way because it dug a trench in the ground that was two feet deep and 200 yards wide, and I think over a half mile. And I just went back there eight years later, and evidence of that trench was still on the ground there in in Philadelphia, Mississippi.
1: So at first you were in chase mode, but at some point did it change over to survival mode for you guys?
2: Well, we were never too worried about the tornadoes themselves because we knew the direction that they were moving, and we were able to stay just out of their path, even there in Dixie Alley where there are lots of trees and a lot of, obstacles that can get in your way when you're chasing tornadoes. Uh, But we were certainly worried for the people in the path of these tornadoes. And we knew this was a violent tornado capable of causing lots of damage and loss of life. And we saw people in the the homes that were sitting on their porches watching the tornado approach. They're definitely worried for those people in the path of the of the tornadoes. And as the tornado was approaching, we were yelling at the people on the porch to take shelter and to get out of the path of it because we knew that, you know, in the in, in mobile homes especially, being in the path of this tornado, it, it just wasn't survivable.
1: So some people were out like trying to see them.
2: Yeah, and uh, they were definitely out trying to see the tornadoes come. And 2011 was a very active year for tornadoes in Dixie Alley overall. And just a few weeks before that, we were chasing an outbreak on April 15, 2011, that had over 100 tornadoes. And we were actually in the damage path uh, from those tornadoes two weeks prior, watching um, damaging tornadoes crisscross those paths during the super outbreak. Wow. Certainly after the uh, super outbreak, uh, people in that region started taking tornadoes a lot more. Soon.
1: I saw some video that your team shot of, of just a monstrous tornado as it approached a large brick house. And I can't even imagine how terrifying it would be to see the power of that.
2: Yeah, just, you certainly know when you see tornadoes like that that they're very violent. They have a, a crisp left edge to them, and you can tell that a tornado is coming directly at you when it's appearing to not move side to side at all. And that means that it's either coming directly at you or moving away. And you, In that case, it was coming right at us. And so we tried to get to a position where that left edge of the tornado was moving just a little bit across our field of view because even with the armored vehicles that are designed to – Intercept tornadoes, tornadoes of that strength, you just can't survive, even even in a, a vehicle with, with sheet metal hacked on the outside for for armor.
1: What was the memory that stands out above all else from your chase that day?
2: Well, we certainly saw the the dark side that the, those storms leave behind firsthand, and uh, we saw that right after that EF five uh, tornado, we saw the development of the eventual damaging Tuscaloosa tornado, and that developed near. Cuba, Mississippi, right near the Alabama-Mississippi border, and I just remember how quickly the storms would go from being a cumulonimbus cloud to a full-fledged supercell to having a massive wedge in the ground with no rain or hail at all yet, and just how quickly they went from that whole development process from nothing to a tornado on the ground in a matter of minutes. It was just incredible, and so after that ESI moved off into the distance, the uh, Tuscaloosa tornado touchdown in a matter of minutes and there was another cell merger and we tried to chase the Tuscaloosa tornado but we got blocked by downed trees just in the west side of town and then we dropped to the south and um, intercepted the Centerville, Alabama uh, tornado that was eventually rated an ES3 and on that day we were probably 40 miles northeast of that tornado in progress even well northeast of the core of the supercell and debris was already falling out of the sky so uh, the winds were so strong aloft that the tornado would loft very large chunks of debris and then transport it downstream, and it was just raining out of the sky well to the northeast of the supercell. So I think just the uh, true potential power of the atmosphere during these big tornado outbreaks was was on full display on such a large scale that day. And And then the reports of the damage started coming in, and it was almost overwhelming because there were dozens and dozens of supercells with confirmed large tornadoes in the ground over so many different states that it was it was very difficult to, to keep track of from a blood pressure standpoint. too. I'm
1: sure. I'm sure. Well, and then and talk to me about that, because in the aftermath, did you get to hear some of the survivor stories or, or what was that like even walking through in the
2: aftermath? Yeah, we certainly saw a lot of that damage firsthand. And we went to Tuscaloosa right afterward and embedded with many of the search and rescue teams. And um, just being with them was was absolutely terrifying because they were searching for people that had passed and searching for bodies within the damage path and kind of witnessing that was, was scary and uh, difficult to see, but just seeing those heroes firsthand with the Alabama task force, one that we were with and a few of the other uh, firefighters and first responders out there and just seeing the true heroes of the recovery effort was something that was incredible and inspirational, But, but seeing the dark side with these storms, leave behind certainly is motivational from a stone-facing perspective to continue to call in those reports and try to do everything you can from from our side of things to prevent that
1: loss of life. Well, I'm joined now. I'm going to bring Jeff Cornish in. You know Jeff. I mean, obviously, he he works here at the AccuWeather Network. You guys talk to each other all the time. So thanks for sitting in with us, Jeff. I'm
0: glad to be here with you guys.
1: Yeah, I figured Jeff might have some questions for you because you were back earlier in your career, but you were farther to the north of this system. You were up in Kentucky at that time, right, kind of watching the whole thing unfold. And I thought maybe I could talk to you both about the components and what was happening in the atmosphere as this thing
0: started to unfold. Sure, this was uh, a big picture that really was volatile. I remember um, off the east coast, the Bermuda High. We talk about the Bermuda High, big high pressure system that often sits over Bermuda and the Western Atlantic. It was very strong and slowly strengthening, and maybe a little farther north and west of its typical location. And there was just a, a really sharp trough across the central U.S. Um, and um, it, you know, it's interesting to hear read stories about how uh, he went through this whole multi-day progression of the event. Um, I guess, Reed, before this developed, it was pretty clear that we were going to have multiple days in a row. Uh, So what was your approach to the marathon? How do you prepare for such a thing when you know you're going to be out for four or five maybe longer days uh, in a row with an event like this?
2: Well, back then we would certainly prepare during the off season. So I would basically hibernate and rest and make sure I was all dialed in from equipment perspective and we would certainly target those those bigger outbreaks during tornado season so you're very rested when you come into an outbreak like that because you have to be prepared for chasing for multiple days and there are several systems that season that we would chase from basically the rocky mountains until almost the atlantic coast and this was one of them during the super outbreak with even the day after on april 28th being extremely active in the north carolina piedmont i wasn't able to make it that far northeast but there was another um, outbreak that day that was the last day of the super outbreak in the 28 which also there are several tornadoes up there but you certainly have to be prepared from a nutrition and uh and rest standpoint to do that uh multiple days
1: i would imagine there could be even some like post-traumatic stress to some of those where you just got to take some downtime after just to kind of mentally get yourself back into it again
2: yeah definitely have to eat a lot of fiber i think that's uh that's the number <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, or something like that because we eat a lot of gas station food. But uh, so I, I
1: try to... Can, uh, gas station food. I room. never thought of that.
0: <laughs> you could do a separate podcast on the digestive system of a storm chaser. Right. <laughs> oh, my. <Yeah. laughs> Pretty wild stuff, though. Reed, I, I always would think it would be challenging to determine at what moment should you continue on with the chase or at what moment should you kind of stop and help people out, mm-hmm. at least at what point... Uh, do you make that decision?
2: Well, we've always said that when we're storm chasing. The second that you see damage or people in need, then you drop everything and do search and rescue until the first responders have the situation under control, and then you move on with the chase. And one thing with the super outbreak is there were so many storms coming wave after wave that it would be possible to chase a storm, do search and rescue, regroup, group, drop to another storm, see another tornado, and go through that whole process over and over again. And uh, those those outbreaks in 2011, uh, like two weeks prior too, on April 15, would just come in wave after wave. It wouldn't be like a squall line would move through and then the outbreak would be over and you'd have one day of severe weather. This day wasn't only multiple days of severe weather within the outbreak, but within each day there were multiple waves as well in the morning and then the afternoon and into the evening and overnight. So you're certainly doing lots of chasing and lots of search and rescue and We were blocked by trees, so we couldn't get into the Tuscaloosa area by a few different counties, Uh, but we did see quite a bit of damage with that, that first EF5 tornado near Philadelphia, Mississippi.
0: A lot of us who grow up a little farther north, maybe closer to the Great Lakes or the Northeast, we always, at least in my opinion, I seem to have held on to May 31st of 1985 as kind of the big event. Uh, at least in Pennsylvania's case, that was uh, the, you know, the case that brought uh, an F5, which would now be an EF5, uh, to Northwest Pennsylvania and. Uh, you know, the great loss of life and a terrible number of tornadoes from uh, the Ohio Valley into Ontario. How would you compare Mm -hmm. this event with, with May 31st of 1985 in terms of the magnitude of the event?
2: Well, these big outbreaks in the central and eastern United States often happen when you take characteristics of Great Plains tornado outbreaks and then move them off to the east. And so then you have the large warm sector and extreme moisture and thermodynamics of the central and eastern U.S., but then you have the characteristics of Great Plains tornado outbreaks as well, and you combine all of those over such a large geographical area, and it's basically just the perfect recipe for disaster for tornadoes. And I think that these uh, outbreaks, like you mentioned, in 1985, but that stretched from the Ohio River Valley all the way through Pennsylvania, and also this one, uh, where that they have large warm sectors that are uncapped and also strongly unstable and also very strongly sheared. So you had a very large, low-level jet that uh, took over multiple states. And it's basically impossible for a storm to develop within an environment that has no capping inversion with a low enough cloud base and with strong enough wind shear to get those tornadoes. And some of the characteristics that you took from the Great Plains and moved off to the east were a strong elevated mixed layer or dry air punching in at mid-levels. And that would happen over a large area as well as they said this massive, Clear slot coming in, dry slot coming in at mid-levels of the atmosphere. Over top, very uh, moist, uh, a very moist and, and warm atmosphere at low levels, and that created a very large, unstable warm sector. You also had a massive trough and a thick jet stream, and that was uh, kind of the defining char- characteristic of the whole entire 2011 season. And also it's kind of scary because we're seeing that kind of thick, robust jet stream early on this year as well, which is often uh, – characterizes those strong Dixie Alley outbreaks. And uh, so when you basically take the west to the east, that's when you get these very large-scale historic tornado outbreaks. And that includes kind of those dry line features marching well east of the Great Plains because of such a a dynamic mid- and upper-level atmosphere.
0: You talked about a a huge uh, warm sector. Remember, that was the case in 2011. A lot of the southeast was in the upper 70s to the 90s for highs. Uh,
1: What were the dew points like that day in those areas?
0: The Gulf was wide open because we had that really strong ridge off the east coast in conjunction with the big trough across the central U.S. And, you know, that trough became more exaggerated on the 27th when a, a strong disturbance dipped through. Gives the trough, we call it a negative tilt. If you think back to algebra class, if you have, uh, you know, remember w- w- y equals mx plus b, that yeah. old uh, formula. Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember
1: that back I, in algebra yes. class. <laughs> I don't know.
0: A positive slope, though, would be kind of like, you know, going up from bottom left up to the top right. Negative tilt would be uh, the inverse, kind right. of going down the steps as you'd go from left to right. Uh, and uh, in this case, as a disturbance rotates through the base of a the trough, there's a certain inflection point, maybe not that may not be the proper word for it, but there's a certain point at which a disturbance will kind of make trough a little pregnant, if you will. and yeah, it like
1: digs it. yeah, digs. and oh,
0: and when the whole trough becomes exaggerated, kind of down and to the right, south and to the east. That's when we often uh, really see the strongest storm strengthen. That's what happened on the 27th, which really, really scared up a lot of these uh, nasty tornadoes. 216 tornadoes alone on the 27th, and, and four of them were reportedly EF5s after the storm survey completed
1: wow yeah so it this was a, an incredible event and you know I, I brought in uh, Jeff Reed as well to talk about some of the because at different times you know when we're watching on the network you know when when folks at home are watching or when they're listening to us talking about like helicity and and cape and instability or like the dry oh, punch well. or the mixed mid la- layer you know the person at home is like that all sounds incredible don't completely understand it, and I said, you know, I had said to Jeff, he's a really good. You don't get the time to explain it on the air. It's tough, you know.
0: You want to be relevant, and I am always tempted to show the velocities, those weird images on radar that look chaotic, and it's the green against the red. Um, people are typically used to seeing reflectivity. Uh, we don't even call it reflectivity; we just typically call it radar. Uh, and that's the more typical color scale. That's our rain. Yeah. Uh, how? Where is the precipitation? How heavily is it falling? Uh, and the more vivid, vibrant colors indicate uh, a greater number density per cubic meter, if you will. Uh, and sometimes even the, uh, the droplet size or the uh, target that the radar pulses are bouncing off of. Uh, whether it be hail or rain, snow or sleet or whatever, um, you know, if you get a strong radar pulse return, uh, it'll pop up real bright and vivid, and that's where the precipitation is heavily falling. And that's important. That helps us. You know, that that is an indication of where a possible tornado could be based on the shape. We talk about a hook. Sometimes we could talk about that in a minute. Uh, but a lot of the time, you know, we're tempted when we're doing the weather on the air to show the uh, storm relative velocities. Mm-hmm. Uh, which really show these chaotic-looking pictures, and it's hard to really explain that in a concise way, but they're far more valuable to us on the air when we're interpreting the radar.
1: Right, and, and, um, and we're going to talk about the velocity because I think that's an interesting product that comes up more and more. But, Reed, can you explain shear, what we're talking about when we're talking about a highly sheared environment? Maybe use that mm-hmm. storm system as an example.
2: Yeah, well, if you, if you have near-calm surface winds, or let's say they're 10 miles an hour, And then just above the ground, like um, maybe a, a mile or so above the ground, you have really strong winds going at 70 miles an hour. That creates basically a horizontally rotating tube. So if you can imagine two pieces of paper in that environment, the one at the surface is moving at 10 miles an hour, the one just above it is moving at 70 miles an hour, that creates a series of invisible horizontally rotating tubes in the environment. And you can accomplish that through that changing wind speed, and also wind direction. So if you have an easterly wind at the surface and it flips around to westerly just above, that can also create that those horizontally rotating tubes that are basically invisible in the atmosphere. But when a storm develops, you can consider a storm like a giant vacuum cleaner, basically in the atmosphere, an updraft that moves over those horizontally rotating tubes and stretches them into the vertical. And then that vacuum cleaner, when you crank it up a notch to full power, it accelerates that updraft so strong that it tightens that rotation into a tornado and that very generally is is how how wind shear works and if you place a storm in an environment that has those winds that are changing wind speed and direction with height so rapidly it's impossible for it for it not to spin
1: that's an excellent explanation i used to have kids take like a tube from like paper towels at like and roll it, and then imagine it just being sucked up while it's still twisting, so that they can get that kind of visual of how that occurs.
0: I like the vacuum, uh, uh, the approach, vacuum to the, approach to, the, right. to the, the, the updraft. Reed has a PhD in meteorology, though he doesn't toot that horn too much. But he'd be a good professor as well.
1: Well, and the nice thing is, is even though you know the more complicated concept, I think it's always important to be able to to explain it in a way that someone can really understand you need to teach my old algebra teacher from high school <laughs> how to do that. but i mean you know like some people understand it but it's hard to explain it but reed you do a really good job explaining it and i appreciate that
2: oh thank you i, I love explaining them uh, almost as much as chasing
1: them right well it's so, all important work you're obviously doing what you are meant to do so i'm gonna let you go now reed because i know you got some You're always busy with either storm chasing or just taking a break in between before you're storm chasing again. So thanks for talking to us.
2: Thank you guys so much for having me. Good
0: talking to you, Reed.
1: And great talking to you as well, Jeff. Thanks so much to both of you for joining us.
2: Now, before we wrap up, I know we've been talking about tornadoes and the tornado outbreak a whole lot. Well, you know, tornadoes can strike anywhere. So you might ask yourself, what do you do to stay safe if a tornado hits? So here's this week's edition of AccuWeather Ready.
3: Seeking shelter from a tornado under an overpass might sound like a good idea, and it's an idea often captured in films. But meteorologists say that is one of the worst things you can do. The narrow passage underneath an overpass could cause an increase in the wind speed under the bridge. AccuWeather storm warning meteorologist William Clark says there aren't any completely safe options if you're near a tornado while driving, just less dangerous ones. If it is far away, seek shelter in a sturdy structure, especially underground, driving at right angles to the perceived path of the tornado. If you're in a car, stay there, secured into your seatbelt, and put your head down below the window, covering it with your hands or a blanket if you have one. If you can safely get lower than the level of the roadway, exit your car and lie in that area, using a protective covering like a blanket or tarp if you have one. Flying debris is one of the greatest risks when a tornado hits. Being lower than the roadway will allow the strongest winds to pass over you and give you the lowest chance of being struck by flying debris. In some states, there is a better alternative than getting into a ditch if a storm catches you on the road. Kansas, for example, has storm shelters along highways in some areas. Officials stress not to leave your home and drive to a storm shelter in the event of severe weather. For more safety and preparedness tips, go to AccuWeather.com ready. For AccuWeather, I'm Holly Holdren.
1: Well, thanks for listening and join us back here next Thursday when a brand new episode drops. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to AccuWeather's Everything Under the Sun, giving you the stories behind the weather and so much more. New episodes every Thursday. Just search for AccuWeather on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or visit AccuWeather.com/podcast.